As I mentioned, as you saw in your bulletin, we are starting a new series, the book of Colossians, and I'm labeling this series, Jesus Over Everything. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, a strong statement, isn't it? You'll see in your, in your insight, that's insert rather, that's in your bulletin, you'll see that um, we, we want to talk a little bit about the background. Where did this book of Colossians come from? We want to talk a little bit about what's in it. What are we going to find? What are we going to discover along the way? And then we're going to unpack the first couple of verses in an outline that follows. Now, that aspect about having too much baggage, it's, it's not unlike, a friend of mine gave me another analogy. Maybe this one works for you a little bit better. It's kind of like, it has to do with eyeglasses. He described somebody that had worn eyeglasses all of their life. They've always had their glasses. They get out of bed, they reach for their glasses. They get out of the shower, they reach for their glasses. They're always putting their glasses on. They need the glasses to see. But then one day, eye surgery. And they don't need their glasses anymore. But what are they doing out of habit? Out of life, background, habit. What they've done every morning their whole lives. What do they still do? They reach for their glasses, yet they put those glasses on, and do they help their vision? No, they actually hinder their vision. They see less clearly with the glasses on, and yet still the the muscle memory, the whole background causes them to want to put the glasses on. And they feel like they're missing something when they don't have those glasses. Well, something like that has happened with us in the Christian life. We, we, We have been made alive in Christ. We can see things completely differently now. We are invited to look at all of reality through new lenses, through, through Christ's perspective. And yet we've got this background baggage around us. We've got the perspectives that we grew up with, that which we're used to, how we're normally used to understanding circumstances and the stuff of life around us. This is our perspective. This is, this is what we've grown up in. And yet, the Bible tells us something different. And we often filter the Bible through that background baggage, those previous experiences. Now, Paul is, in this letter, there's background that the Church of Colossae has. And that's going to emerge in the letter. It has to do with some of the things that he says, some of the things that he writes, that I think are helpful to us as well. To better understand that, I want to do just a little bit of background into this place that Paul is writing a letter to. Now, the letter to the Colossians, like the letter to the Ephesians, like the letter to the Philippians, they're all written, it it appears, when Paul is in prison, most likely in prison in Rome, first imprisonment around 60 A.D., probably, but that's not expressly stated in the letter. We don't have that as a word from God. We're not going to pack too much into that. But he writes to church the Christians, those who believe in Christ, who are located in this place, in this city called Colossae. Now, Colossae is a town. It's not like Ephesus. It's not like Rome. It's not Athens. It's not Jerusalem. Colossae is perhaps the least important city or town that we have a letter in the New Testament to. Colossae wasn't really that important anymore. In fact, we have no record of Paul himself going there. The church was founded by somebody else in Paul's circles, a man named Epaphras. So it's not apparently that important, at least in the first century. Now, it was an old city. It had been around about 400 years. They had seen 
Alexander the Great come rolling through on his way from Macedonia through to Persia. And so that probably um, asks the question, well, where is this? Well, let's look at it on the map. We have a map of Turkey, first of all. Uh, So there's Turkey in the middle. There's Lebanon down south. That's where Hezbollah is. Now, if you go up above Turkey, there's the Black Sea, and then there's Crimea and Ukraine. So there's that mess going on. And Turkey itself, the new Ottoman Empire and all of its mess. So this is a dangerous part of the world then. It's a dangerous part of the world now. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of background tensions. This is where West meets East where Rome meets the remnants of the Persian Empire and so forth. And so there in Asia Minor, you see the little little red dot, there's where Colossae is, about 100 miles east from Ephesus. Now there's some roads at play here. Roman routes and roads. Well, let's look at the other one first, the Colossian roads. This one, yes. So so here we have Ephesus there on the corner. Now the green dots, those are the cities that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, the seven churches. Uh, Our interest would be Ephesus and Laodicea. Laodicea is maybe seven, ten-ish miles, something like that, from the city of Colossae. And uh, so it's pretty close. Heropolis also is close. Laodicea is the big, wealthy city. Heropolis is kind of a nice place to go. Think of New York City and Martha's Vineyard. Those are those two cities, kind of like. Colossae was important because it was on the main west-to-east route or east-to-west route. It was the last city you, you went through before you went into the mountain passes going further east. So imagine there was a sign, last chance, gas and food, before you enter the mountains. Okay? Or it was the first sign of civilization again, and you're coming through those passes, going from the east, coming to the west. So it had a natural advantage. It, it was someplace of a city for that reason. But then the Romans came along, and the Romans built lots of roads, and the Romans enhanced the road structures of their day so that they could move armies quick wherever they needed them. And the Romans built a new road from Laodicea east. Whoops, whoops, let's go back, go back. And that, that road carries on to Antioch, Pisidia, and further, fur, further into the area of the Galatians. But that road bypassed Colossae. It left Colossae behind. It's kind of like when 503 went through, and what did it do to Poor Brush, poor brush Prairie? Well, there's a business loop. I always smile when I see the business loop to Brush Prairie. If you've been through there, you know what I'm talking about. But imagine if the highways around here looked differently. Imagine if I-5 and 205 didn't meet a Salmon Creek where there's all that new development. Imagine if I-5 and 205 met in Brush Prairie. How would Brush Prairie and Salmon Creek be different? You see, that's what happened to Colossae. The new highways came along, and Colossae was bypassed. Sure, there may have been a business loop, but it didn't really do them a lot of good. So Colossae is more like Battleground or Camus than a more central city like Vancouver or Portland, just in our way of thinking. It's not as wealthy or important as Laodicea or Hierapolis. It's near neighbors. It's nothing like Ephesus 100 miles away. But it's a pleasant place to live and to farm. Here's a picture of what the area looked like. What I like about this, that little mound, that's the ancient tell or the mound where the ruins of the first century city of Colossae would be buried. They've never been excavated. Now, what I like about this picture is there's larger mountains towering in the background behind them. 
And that just reminds me of there's a larger truth that looms over Colossae and all of its own background, all of its own baggage. And we're going to talk about that. It's Jesus over everything. We're going to see through this book that there is a new claim on our lives and whatever background that we have. You see, Colossae is a lot like our towns. It's not a singularly unique and special place, but it's a nice place to live. There's a large Jewish population that is there as a result of the Assyrian captivity and exiles, as well as some of the Babylonian captivity. As, as Jewish people were scattered, they were drawn to certain places where there would be good agriculture and farming, and particularly sheep farming, and this valley has that. One first century rabbi wrote, the wines and the baths of Phrygia, which is Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, the wines and the baths of this area have separated the ten tribes from Israel. They have relocated here. Well, you find them mentioned from here in other places in the New Testament. There's evidence of a strong Greek influence as well. When Alexander the Great came through, Asia Minor was not yet Greek, but it became very Greek. He had a strong influence. They adapted and adopted. And so there's a strong Greek influence with all the Greek gods, the goddess of fortune, gods of healing and prosperity, security. There are the worldview philosophies of Aristotle and Plato and the tensions between them. The Epicureans and their pleasure and indulgence and the Stoics and their self-denial and asceticism. Those tensions are within the Greek side of the society. Politically, there's a mix. There are Hellenists loyal to the Greek way of thinking and doing. There are the Asians, the more traditional background, and then there are, of course, the Romans, the ones who are ultimately in control. And you see those tensions play out, for instance, in, in, in Ephesus, where the town clerk warns them they have their own local Asiarch rulers, but they're ultimately accountable to the Romans, and they need to tread carefully. So there's these various tensions and backgrounds in play, and so there is background in the church. There are some problems in the church that Paul is writing to address. Now, oftentimes we, we go through the book of Colossians and we look for various little hints of background issues. What's going on there? What is Paul needing to address and correct? And we take all those historical references and background hints and we roll them together and we come up with sort of a mix. And it seems like a Jewish and Greek philosophical, maybe um, even an early Gnostic kind of mix. But I don't think that's quite right. There are Greek and Jewish influences in the church. When Paul would go traveling, when Paul would go preaching, where would he start in any given city? What was his first preaching point typically? He would start in the synagogue and he would end in the jail, right? Those were the two ends of his ministry. Okay, so, so certainly he comes across Jews and he also comes, comes across non-Jewish God-fearing who believe the God of Israel is the true God to be worshipped, but they don't become Jewish, but they participate, they listen in on the synagogue. And then there are other non-Jewish people along the way who also are invited into the church and the call of the gospel, and they become believers in Jesus. And so there are various backgrounds within the church. They each have their own baggage. Paul's going to, going to speak to some of that baggage as we go through this book. 
For instance, in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he talks about rulers and authorities, both earthly and spiritual, both visible and invisible. Maybe he has in mind this Greek notion of a wide range of spiritual beings, from the the great god Zeus to lesser gods to partial gods to the titans. and There's this whole range of spiritual beings, and they had a mindset as well concerning spiritual versus matter. Matter is evil, spiritual is good and pure. And so a spiritual God cannot directly create evil matter, so there must be a series of creations to whoever finally created. Well, he's going to, Paul's going to address that. There are not a series of spiritual beings and then one who creates earth and matter in us. No, but Jesus is the one who has created all things. That he is in the, he is the express image of God in humanity. Paul's going to address wisdom and knowledge and warn them about plausible arguments. He's going to warn them about philosophy and tradition. He's going to address circumcision and the uncircumcision. So there's these Greek background issues and there's these Jewish background issues. Do we put them all together or are they a series of different backgrounds? Well, as I look out today, I know many of you. It's a nice thing about a church of our size. I know a lot of you. And, but you folks have issues. You folks have some issues. You really have issues. But are they the same issues? Are we of the same background? We come from a range of different churches. It might be Lutheran. It might have been Methodist. Goodness, it might have been Southern Baptist. We pray for you. It, it might have been... Mormon or Christian science, who know? we all come from a background. We, we had dear friends for years that were from a Greek Orthodox church background. They brought in, they came in with a different perspective for sure. And so we have different church backgrounds. We have different cultural and societal, even economic backgrounds. We might have different political backgrounds or perspectives that we've grown in and assumptions that might even be related to which direction you drove to church from this morning. There's more conservatives coming from one direction, there'd be more progressive-minded folk coming from a different direction, and I'll warn you, we have people who arrive here from all over. So be careful about what you assume about the background and the assumptions of somebody else that may not be quite the same as yours. We all have issues. We all have background baggage, but it's not the same baggage. And Paul does something wonderful here with a not terribly important church in a not terribly important place, but a people who are very important to God. That's one of the fun things about Colossae. It's not a moving and shaking city, and yet God speaks to them in particular. It's not one of the seven churches of Revelation, and yet God speaks to them in particular. And God uses his letter to them to speak to us. You see, Colossae is more like, did I say it? More like Battleground or Camas than Vancouver or Portland. They're, they're, these are, in some ways, kind of our kind of everyday location and people. Having our own background, we have issues too. For instance, issues about politics and our own confidence that the right political leader could make the difference. We, we, we have confidence in science, even though, if I could say it this way, science is 
evolving. We, we have great confidence and expectations about health care. That when trouble comes, the doctors need to fix it. They need to know the answer to this. They need to be able to save me in this. They should. They're the doctors. This is the hospital after all. When God tells us this body is mortal, not immortal. That this corruptible must put on incorruption. There has to be a change. From dust this came and to dust it will return. But we'll be very insistent about putting that off, won't we? And we have high expectations and confidences in who should be able to do that. We have a lot of confidence in our society in degrees and experts. Other people who give us perspective on things and we'll just suck it in and spit it back out as if it were our own. There's a danger there of not thinking for ourselves. We have our own church backgrounds as I described. We've always done it this way. Why are we now doing that? We have our own family norms. Do we have our own family dysfunctions? Probably all of us do. One of the things that, that when, when, when we're talking with new couples that are anticipating getting married, one of the things we talk about is, is family background. And we do this thing called a family map, uh, your family, your family, and how that relates to this new family that is now being formed. Because now and again, you look behind you and there are your parents. You say, what are you doing here in our house? And yet, they will, sh their shadows will be in your home in ways that you don't expect. And so you need, it's helpful to have your eyes open on that. We have background. We have, what I tell the kids? Too much baggage. And Paul is going to address that here. We're going to meet, as I mentioned, a man named Epaphras. Epaphras comes up in verse 7 and also in chapter 4. He seems to have planted the church at Colossae, not Paul. Paul apparently hasn't been there. And Epaphras has been sent by them and the other two cities' churches, apparently, to bring help and assistance and ministry to Paul during his imprisonment. Now, during his imprisonment, Paul has also become acquainted with a, with a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is the topic of the letter to Philemon, that little New Testament postcard. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He flees from, from Philemon, and he may have stolen some things on his way out, and he maybe has been hiding among the large population in Rome, and he's, he's come in contact with the gospel. He's been born again. He's, brought, he's in, in, connected in Paul's circles, and Paul now is sending him back, back to his former master, back to his previous home, Colossae, and back to Philemon there to accomplish, to complete now horizontally in human relationship the reconciliation that has been started with Onesimus' reconciliation with God by faith in Christ. You see, faith in Christ impacts what we then do, how we then live in this life. And there's a collision course. Between, between the will and the mind and the heart and the purposes of God and the background baggage that I've grown up with. And Onesimus is stepping back into his background baggage at Colossae, but from a whole new perspective as a brother in Christ. 
Along the way, we're going to spend a little time poking into the book of Philemon as well because it happens in the midst of this context. But with the potential of our baggage in Colossians, let me then give you an outline. And boy, we spent a lot of time on background, didn't we? But that'll give you a setup for the book. Now, for an outline, think of chapter 1 as the preeminence of Christ in his person. The image and the fullness of God. He is the image and fullness of God. He's going to affirm their faith in Christ who has reconciled us and who has given to us his ministry of reconciliation. In chapter 2, we're going to see the preeminence of Christ in our faith. The preeminence of Christ, Jesus over our traditions, our worldviews, background philosophies, cultural norms. In chapter 3, we're going to see the preeminence of Christ in our new life as those who are now risen in him. The preeminence of Christ, Jesus over the old way in which we used to live. He has put a new call on our life. And we're going to see in chapter 4 the preeminence of Christ in our serving for God's grace to others through us. We're going to be given faithful examples that we will be encouraged to follow. To say it in a nutshell this way, Jesus over every created being, Jesus over every other perspective, Jesus over our own lives, and Jesus over our activities and ambitions. Jesus over everything. This letter is all about the glorious supremacy of Christ and who he is. There are descriptions of his deity that are here in this letter that are unparalleled elsewhere in the New Testament. We have this for a reason, and he gives it to a little church that's been bypassed. And he gives it to us. And we're supposed to take it to those around us. Now, at the bottom of your, of your outline, your note outlines, there's a memory verse. And I'm going to keep that there for a couple of weeks, because you haven't had a chance yet. I'm not going to stand you up and have you recite it now, because you just saw it there. You said, what? Memory verse? There's homework? Yes. And so we're going to leave that there next week, probably the week after that. But next week, I'm going to test us. Next week, we are going to stand and we're going to recite that verse together. Well, at least three of us will, right? Maybe more. I hope so. Now, we're going to keep that for several weeks, the same verse, and then we'll change it up with another one. We'll probably have six total in the whole 18 weeks or so that we're in this series because we want to spend, we want to spend some time with it. And I know many of you are also memorizing verses for your D groups and so on, but I do want you to give some time to this. So we'll be doing a memory verse that captures some of the key points through the book along the way. But now, let's get into the actual text itself. I did not want to give you a background and a history and a cultural lesson of Colossae and send you home to lunch and football. I wanted to give you something out of the Word. So we're going to jump into the Word now. We're going to do the first two verses. The first two verses? Really? These? Is there something there? Yes, there is. But now let's, let's take a break. We've been sitting a while. I want you to stand and, str stand and stretch, and we're going to stand and read these two verses together. And then when you sit down, you'll think I've got another 40 minutes. <laughs> so, Colossians chapter 1, hearing God's word, even in the introduction, the salutation, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. O oh Lord, in these simple words, 
in these opening words. Would you speak to us this morning, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your seats. Let's dip into those few words, those couple of phrases. First of all, under the heading of who will I listen to? I said you got background baggage. I said you have a multitude of voices. You've got Jewish voices. You've got Greek voices. You've got mom's voice. You've got aunt's voice. You've got, you've got background coming at you. You've got what they told you at school. You've got what you saw online. Who will I listen to? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. There's authority with humility there. There's authority, Paul, an apostle, and he doesn't include with it his normal greeting in many of his letters, a Paul, an apostle, and bondservant of Jesus Christ. He leaves that part out here. He hasn't been with them. They haven't experienced his heart in serving them, but he wants them to hear what he has to say with apostolic authority, an apostle's authority. This is authority that is not something he has, he has achieved on his own. He hasn't climbed the church ladder and arrived there. He didn't work his way up. He didn't canvas for votes, shaking hands and kissing babies. He, he has been appointed rather unexpectedly from the road to Damascus. When he, there he is, Paul, or rather Saul of Tarsus, is going about other people's business, and all of a sudden God intervenes and meets him there. And God changes his whole future and destiny and puts a call on his life that he's to be God's sent one, God's apostle to the Gentiles. Okay. He's an apostle not of his own choosing, not even of his own desire perhaps, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. There's an authority there. So they must listen. There's an authority there. We must listen. Apostolic authority is unique. Look there, he mentions Timothy. Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is not the assistant apostle. Timothy is not the associate apostle. Timothy is not the apostle in waiting. Timothy is never called an apostle. Timothy is a brother. Like you, my brother. You, my sister. That's Timothy's standing. Timothy has that standing with us in the gospel, in Christ. Paul and Peter and John, they have a unique calling by God as the apostles and prophets who lay the foundation of Jesus Christ for the church. They lay a foundation and no other foundation can be laid than is Jesus. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, we build on that. So we need the foundation. This is why we go back and we listen in on a conversation from 2,000 years ago because this is what God has said and laid down for his church. There is truth here that is going to apply through the generations until he comes for us. Who will I listen to? I will listen to God himself through Paul, the sent one of Christ Jesus by God's will. Where do I find my identity? He speaks to identity now in verse 2. Paul is writing by God's will to the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters. Now let me explain why. I, I, you'll hear me often read when your Bible says brothers, I, I read brothers and sisters. And that's because the, the, the word can include both. And in the customary greeting, it was intended to include both. 
This Paul wasn't only writing to the men in the church, he was writing to everybody in the church. And so that was the, the Greek norm of the day, and so for our English conventions, I simply expand it. A lot of your Bibles will have a little footnote that will say the same thing. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Now saints, they are holy ones. They are special, unique, set-apart ones. These people are different. They are unique. They have been uniquely set apart by God, and they are you. We are saints. We are God's holy ones. We are God's set-apart ones. We are sanctified, set apart for a unique. Don't think of, of saints as perfect, as the, the best of the church that we lift up and honor and might even pray to. No, we pray to God in Christ by the Spirit. Prayer is a God-directed thing. Prayer is not to other humans. You can make requests of other humans, but we, we're never called to pray to the saints. No, the saints are simply God-set-apart ones, God-sanctified ones, God's holy ones, holy in that they are called by Him to a unique and special purpose. My favorite example of this, sanctified, holy, set-apart, you've heard it before. It's my toothbrush. My toothbrush is special. My toothbrush is unique. If you come to my house, I would share many things with you. I would even let you use, probably if you wanted to, my hairbrush. Because I don't use it that much anyway. <laughs> but I will not share my toothbrush. My toothbrush is holy. It is set apart. It is for a unique and particular and special purpose. Julie doesn't use it. We don't use it to clean the cat's teeth. We don't use it to clean the tile grout. It's only for brushing my teeth. That's what it's for. Now I've got old ones that have been discarded. I'll use those for all kinds of things. They're in my toolbox and they're grimy and greasy. But my toothbrush is sanctified. It is holy. It is for me alone. It is for a particular purse, or particular use by a particular person. And so are you. You are the set-apart ones, the sanctified, the holy ones of God for His unique calling and purpose. We are no longer of the world. We are in Christ. And we are called by God as His own. And so Jesus has a new call upon our lives. And just like Onesimus, faith in Christ changed things horizontally as well in his relationships with others, so also will God's call upon our life. We're going to see that in this book as we carry on a little further. Saints and faithful still need correction. Isn't that interesting? They still need exhortation. They still need to yield to. You and I still need correction, exhortation, and we need to yield to God's claim on us. So Paul writes to the saints, whether it's in Colossae or Corinth for that matter, and he's then going to correct them, he's going to encourage them, he's going to challenge them to yield to God's claim upon them. More consistent practice with this new position that they have in Christ. Now they are the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, faithful I take it both and they are faithfully following, but they are also full of faith. They have faith in Christ and they are in Christ and they are at Colossae. There's a difference between identity and location. 
Paul addresses that with the Philippians as well, right? In a place where Roman citizen is very important among those, those in that colony of Philippi where many of the, of the population are Roman citizens as an outpost as if they lived in Rome itself. And yet Paul writes to the church there and he says, our citizenship is in heaven from where we look for our Savior. Our eyes are there. Our expectation is there. That is our claim. That is our calling. That is their identity. They are in Christ and they are at Colossae. We have pride of our own citizenship perhaps. We have pride of place in our, in our identity as American citizens as compared to many places in the world. I mean, people love to stream across our borders and become here. They come here expecting a child so that child will be born here and have this citizenship. It's an important claim, but that's nothing compared to our identity in Christ. There's a difference between identity and location. Identity and cultural background and baggage. In our culture today, a lot of people wrestle with identity. I don't know who I am. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I feel like on the inside I'm different than what I am on the outside. And maybe I even go to excessive means in order to change that identity. And yet I end up perhaps in even greater despair than I was before because the change did not bring the satisfaction the fullness that I thought that it would. Still I have this longing. Still I have this emptiness. Still I have this need because I'm confused about my identity. And God comes along and said, you were created lovingly and specially and uniqueness in my image. You were created male and female to Together declare and manifest and show to the rest of my creation the image of God, its creator. You have been given a unique privilege among all of God's creation, even above the angels, in being the image bearers of God. You are my own, and I so love you and cherish you that I have paid everything in order to bring you back into relationship with me. Your identity is one who is made by and loved by God. And we will not find our purpose. We will not find our fulfillment until we find it there. They are in Christ. That's primary. They are located in Colossae. That's secondary. Our location, our background, the influences of our culture. This is where we are, where we were, we grew up perhaps, and this is where we are now set. But we are in Christ, that's primary. We are at Brush Prairie, that's secondary. What difference does the gospel make? The gospel is expressed in a nutshell here grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, grace and peace, those are two characteristic blessings of the first century. When you greeted somebody, if you were Jewish, you greeted somebody, you would say, peace to you, shalom. If you greeted somebody and you were Greek and they were Greek, you would say, grace to you, charis. And so, grace and peace, those were characteristic blessings of the day. And Paul is Jewish, and yet you see what he's done? First of all, he switched it around. We would think of Paul speaking with the gospel first in synagogues. We would think of that Paul would typically say, peace to you and grace. But he doesn't. He switches it around. And that's theologically important. Grace from God always precedes peace 
with God. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so Ephesians 2 tells us that by grace are we saved through faith, through believing. We believe, we have faith in Christ as the means of God's grace saving us. By grace we are saved. And then, therefore, being made righteous by faith, believing in Christ, we have peace with God. So grace brings peace. God's working for us on our behalf brings us first into peace with God. And think of grace as well as God's continuing unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor for us in life. The spiritual gifts and enablings are considered, are called by Paul to be graces of God to the church. Our abilities to serve him, to be used by him. Paul's Paul's calling as apostle is given to him by God's grace. And it's as we live in. So grace is, first of all, Grace is, first of all, a a standing that we have with God. By God's grace, we have peace as our standing. We now live in a state of grace, in a state of acceptance, in a state of unearned, undeserved. I don't have to work to maintain it. God has given it to me freely, standing in relationship with him. We have peace with God. Grace and peace are a basis and means for hearing Christ and following him. It is God's grace to us, undeserved to us, that he has given us his word and we can hear it. We can respond to it. It is God's grace that his spirit indwells us and opens to us and illumines for us the truth of his word that we can respond to it. We are saved by grace and we live by grace. We follow Christ by his grace. And it is in yielding ourselves and trusting him and following him in his grace that we have peace from God in life. That we experience the fullness of the Christian life itself. Grace is our standing. Grace is our basis and means for following Christ. Grace and peace are our experience when we trust and yield to his will over our own will. That's what we find peace, when we trust God and his grace toward us rather than what we can do for ourselves. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now this is a revolutionary statement. And it's another baggage statement. Many of us have baggage relating to our own fathers. And that background baggage relating to our own fathers and our relationship with his, him, especially if it wasn't good or if it was almost non-existent. Maybe father was distant. Maybe father was a taskmaster. Maybe he seemed harsh in your experience. And you see God like that. God is distant. God is harsh. God has all these expectations that I can't quite measure up to. Things are never good enough for God, quite. But Jesus, well, he's the kind and gracious member of the Trinity. So we gravitate to Jesus rather than to God as Father. Do you know God loves you? You do. You know that. You know God tenderly, graciously, longingly loves you so that he gave his only unique son for you. 
God paid everything because of his love for you. God, your Father, sings and rejoices over you. You are his inheritance. You are God's glory and God's boast. Now, our earthly fathers may have felt the same way and just were not as good as conveying it. And we take that baggage into relationship with God is our Father, and it colors that as well. And Paul's going to try to redirect some of that, but he tells us right up front, from God our Father, our loving and gracious Father, who loves us, who gave Jesus for us. Maybe instead, maybe instead of taking our baggage about our experience with Father and bringing that into our relationship with God, what if we turn that around? What if we look to the Scripture, look to the truth of God's Word about who our God is as Father, and what if that changed the way I function as father or grandfather? What if instead of using past experience and cultural baggage, what if I used what God says about Father and brought that into my ministry as Father? And what if that changed then how we as children related to our fathers because we see how we can relate to God as our Father? What if we let the truth change us rather than the culture and the baggage limit our perception of the truth? That's the call of the book of Colossians in a nutshell. Let's put Jesus over everything. Let's, let's get such a big view of Jesus as the center of our focus and attention that everything else begins to pale in comparison, to maybe fall off around the edges. It just doesn't have the same attraction to us anymore. Father, would you indeed, in this series, show us Jesus? Father, from these simple exhortations or, or, or phrases in the opening verses, would you remind us of who we are in Christ rather than what the culture might say about us? Would you remind us of your grace and peace, that because of your grace we have peace with you through Jesus our Savior, that we can have peace in the midst of the turmoil around us and around the world? because you have been very gracious to us both now and for all of eternity into the future. So, Father, as we turn to your truth, let it be the thing that changes our thinking, that changes our perspective, that has its rightful claim on our lives. Lord, help us indeed to put Jesus over everything. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.